Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the faith chapter, and for good reason, because it upholds several examples of men and women of faith from the Old Testament. And they're quite encouraging examples, but one of the things I've noticed about this chapter is, you know, when I think of faith, I think of the faith of Abraham, I think of the faith of some of these men and women in the Old Testament period, and I think, man, I wish I had faith like that. Have you ever had that same thought? That you wish you had that kind of faith? Well, I'm going to tell you today, actually, you do, you do, you're in the same club, the same category, just like these people named in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, you are such a person of faith. In fact, if your faith could be turned into fluid, you'd be soaking wet. I look around, I see faith all over the place. You know, one of the main points of Hebrews 11 is that we can see their faith by the things they said and by the things they did. And in some, of the, in some cases, and we'll see a little bit later, some of the things they did were not uh, outstandingly courageous things. They just expressed themselves in a certain way, said things, and did things. Uh, in some cases, it did not involve risking their life, but we can see through their actions, through their behavior, that they believed God. And that's the key thing right there. So when I look around this room, I see people who are here today. Why are you here? Because you are people of faith. And the, and, the, and the carpet would be soaked with all the dripping if it could be turned into fluid. Let's look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at one of these examples. We have several examples there. Uh, we begin with Abel in verse 4, then Enoch in verse 5. We come down to verse 7, and we read about Noah. It says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, tell me, if, is there anything unreasonable about what Noah did? It might appear un, have appeared unreasonable to some people. He's out there building a big old boat, and some may have wondered why. But in any case, was it unreasonable? Because you see, Noah heard from God, and he knew it was God telling him to do this thing. Tell me, if you had been in his place, and he had told you, listen, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm very sick in my stomach for what man has done. I'm going to destroy him from the face of the earth. I want you to build an ark, and these are the dimensions. This is how you do it. I'm going to give you 120 years to get it done. And I want you to do this, and I'm going to save you and your household, along with a bunch of animals. Would you do it? It would be unreasonable not to do it, wouldn't it? It'd be foolish not to do it. Now, the point I'm driving at here is that faith is not, never is, contrary to reason. Some people think of reason on the one hand, that's where science belongs. That's where the biological sciences, physics, and all these other things we, we see about on the Science Channel or on uh, some other television station or that we studied about at school. They think of reason and the rational mind and logic belonging over here in this category, and then faith is over here. No, no, actually, faith is not contrary to reason. It is based on reason. Because when you know you're receiving instructions from God, the most reasonable thing you could possibly do is follow that instruction. And I think everyone in here in this room would agree with that. So belief in a creator God is not an irrational belief. Not at all. My belief or faith, 
faith and belief meaning the same thing. In the existence of a creator is based on reason. You know, I look around, I look around this world and I hear arguments from atheists like one particular uh, physicist who is also an atheist. And he explains how the universe leapt into existence from nothing without a creator. And I'm thinking, come on. You've got to be smarter than that with all the, all the letters after your name. But really, when you start listening to him, you listen to his explanation, what he's doing, he is redefining nothing. His nothing is really something. You know, when they talk about the quantum fluctuation that took place, well, you know, nothing doesn't fluctuate. I'm sorry. You've got to have something to fluctuate. A ripple in the, uh, in the fields that existed. Well, those fields are something. So if matter came from that, if it sprang from that, it sprang from something. Because these people know that something doesn't come from nothing. So I use reason to conclude that since the universe had a beginning, and we know that, since it had a beginning, something had to cause it to begin, hence the existence of God. Also, when I look around the world and I see design, I see incredible, complex design in the creatures of this world, including human beings, you think of the way we're put together, our organs, the, the mind, the mind. And I'm to think that that came, uh, that came about as a result of a series of random uh, occurrences. No, no. A design requires a designer. So my point here is that reason and faith do not contradict each other. What we see in Hebrews, 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is a list of people who acted reasonably. Their actions, the things they said, the things they did, were the result of a reasonable faith. And today, when we reason our way, when we look at the Bible, what it says, we use reason. It's, it's God-given reason. It's not what we call it human, oh, you're using human reason. Well, you know, God gave us minds to reason with. And there, so again, there's no contradiction between faith and reason. They go hand in hand. It's not like Archie Bunker said one time when he was uh, arguing with uh, his son-in-law, Michael Stivick, you know, meathead, on, on faith. And, and Michael was arguing and said, well, that doesn't make any sense. He said, and Archie Bunker said, faith is something that you believe that nobody in his right mind would believe. <laughs> He's trying to defend faith. That's not true. That's not true. You know, what is unreasonable is, is doing, if you know God has told you to do something, and that's not doing it. That's contrary to reason and contrary to faith. So we're called upon to have a reasonable faith. In verses 20 through 22, we read about uh, some blessings that took place and some actions that, uh, rep that, that, it, that demonstrated faith. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Okay, what, do we, what did he do? He blessed them. Why did he bless them? Was his life at risk or anything like that? No, no, no. He blessed them. Why did he do that? Because he believed God. He knew what God told him. And he believed God, and so he gave them this blessing because that was God's will. The fact that he did it, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, shows, shows us that he was a person of faith. By faith, verse tw uh, 21, by faith Jacob, 
when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. There again, why did he do that? What he did demonstrates the internal faith. What he did externally demonstrate what was going on internally. That's faith. And it's a reasonable faith because he knew God had given him these instructions. And then it says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. That's by faith. Why? What does this show us? It shows us that he believed that promise that was made to Abraham long before concerning the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. That was promise that was given back then. Joseph shows by his statement here, by what he said, the instructions he gave, that he believed God. And so when I say that you belong in this category, well, it's absolutely true. This is a room full of people of faith. You, like these people in Hebrews 11, are a people of faith. So we see then that faith is very reasonable. We see that it is not reasonable to not believe God. Faith then, I should say, uh, deliberately doing what God says don't do is a contradiction to faith. It's unreasonable. And you know, you look at some of these examples here, and you see actions that are uh, not necessarily particularly remarkable or outstanding. They just simply demonstrate this internal reality of faith. We know that the people of Hebrews 11 were people of faith because, as I said earlier, of the things they said and the things they did. The content of the heart is revealed through actions and words. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when I listen to comments, for example, sometimes after the speaker finishes, your comments around the room, people say, oh, that was really good, that, I was helped by that message. Uh, I, I found that very encouraging, uplifting. Uh, don't let that guy speak again, no. <laughs> but uh, that, see, that, that demonstrates that you're a people of faith when, you, uh, when we hear comments like that and hear people talking about the coming kingdom of God and looking forward to that and so on. So we, we are a people of faith. But sometimes words and actions are inconsistent, inconsistent with the rational faith that resides within us. Let me say that again. See some puzzled looks. Sometimes our words and our actions are inconsistent with what we believe. Think, how could that be? No, it, it's true. It, it's inconsistent. Seem, it seems illogical. If you believe something, why would you act differently from what you believe? Well, I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm going to give you some biblical examples of it. But I want to give you an illustration. Uh, several years back, I was uh, <coughs> suffering from what turned out to be cervicogenic headaches, uh, stemming from some, some stuff going on in my cervical spine. You know, bone spurs, arthritis, herniated discs, you know, getting old. <laughs> and I had these intense headaches back of my head daily. And I was worried that something really, I didn't know what was going on. Is this a, an aneurysm or something? I didn't know. So they did uh, an MRI and found out what it was. Well, when I went in for the test, I had absolute faith in that procedure and in the people who were doing it. No question about it. 
Uh, I knew it would not harm me. I was not, after, after all, going in for an organ transplant. I was going in for an MRI. I knew it was safe. I knew the people who were doing it were competent. And I knew no harm could come from it. That was my rational mind at work. That was my faith. So they put me down there on the, on the, uh, the little pad thing, table, whatever you call it. They put me down there and uh, told me what position to get in. The only thing I dreaded about it was I knew you had to stay still. And when you, when you think, when you know you've got to stay still, something on your face is going to itch. <laughs> you know that's going to happen. It's like, lay, it's like sitting back in the dentist chair and they've got your mouth wide open and they're working around in there. You know you're going to start thinking about swallowing. You've got to swallow. <laughs> but, uh, it, but in any case, uh, that was the only thing that was dreadful about it. So I lay down there and they drew me into the, you know, with a, from the control switch in there. They put me into there. And something happened that I did not anticipate, had not occurred to me before that moment in time. I panicked. Really? Me? I panicked. I said, whoa! <laughs> and they drew me right out of there. And I, I was kind of embarrassed because, you know, Jedis don't do that. <laughs> but they drew me out of there, and uh, I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. They said, no, think nothing of it. It happens all the time. I said, in fact, it happens with men more often than it does with women. And the reason is the, the tube is so small comparatively. And when I, they started drawing me in there and me thinking nothing of it, all is well, you know, I could see it right there in front of me, and I could feel it on both shoulders. I said, they're stuffing me in a tube. <laughs> and I'm claustrophobic. So I reacted that way. Now, that, I reacted not according to my rational mind, not according to faith, but according to what? Emotion. So that's something else that produces actions and words from us that is not from the rational mind. There's, it's absolutely irrational to do what I did. Why? And by the way, I went ahead and had it. Went ahead and had the thing done right there. They said, well, you can go down here to open MRI, where they, and I, I didn't want to do that. They said, well, we could give you some, some uh, medication to sedate you. Nope. So we're going to do it right here. So we did. Just has a matter of getting my mind in gear and realizing I'm not going to smother. I'm not going to get stuck in there, you know. So once I got my mind in the proper framework there and, and realized what was going on, thought about it a little while, they put me back in there and went through it just fine. But in any case, the point here I'm making is that sometimes words and actions come from something other than reason, other than logic, other than the rational mind. In other words, other than faith. I'm telling you, as a person of faith can, because of emotion, can act and say things contrary to faith. I know that's never happened to anybody in here. <laughs> but uh, now I want to give you some biblical examples. I want to look at uh, Hebrews 11 again. And verse 8 says, uh, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God said, Go. Abraham took up his stuff and went. This was an act of faith. It shows that Abraham believed God. Let's go back there and take a look at uh, that account 
and read our way through it. In Genesis chapter 12, I want to highlight a few points along the way. In Genesis chapter 12, in, in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house and, and to a land that I will show you. Evidently he didn't. As it, the writer of Hebrews said he didn't know where he was going. He said, To a land I will show you. In other words, start walking that way. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now what does that imply? I will make you a great nation. It means he's going to have children. It means he's going to have lots of them, lots of descendants. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Somebody tries to harm you along the way, as I go about carrying out my plan for you, my mission for you, I will curse that person. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham departed, Abram as he was called then, and it says that he went to the land, and verse 7 says, and then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. That means Abraham was going to have to have something he didn't have at this point. He's going to have to have an heir. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him and moved there from there to the mountain. But go, drop on down to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now notice what happened when Abram, remember, this was the man of faith, the man who said, or who got up and went when said, God said, get up and go. The man that's held up as an example of faith, the one who was told, I will give you descendants in great number. The one that says, whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. Here Abraham, as he goes down to Egypt, says it came to pass, in verse 11, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will, not, they will let you live. Now, wait a minute. Here the father of the faithful, this model of faith, is worried about being killed, and he doesn't even have an heir yet. What's going on in his mind? Didn't he, didn't he believe God? You, you see what I'm getting at here? There was faith. Faith was there. That was his rational mind. That was from reason. Because God spoke to him and he believed it. And yet there's something else going on there too, isn't there? Something else going on there, not just faith. There's emotion. There is, no doubt, fear. Fear, a very powerful and influential emotion. Please say you're my sister, that it may be, may be well with me for your sake. You know, they can have you, but <laughs> it'll be well for me that I may live because of you. So it was that Abram came into the Egypt. You know, it turned out well, of course. Uh, it was found out that this was his wife, uh, and they were released and went on. No harm became, fell, befell any of, either of them. But I want you to look at uh, the reiteration of the promise over in uh, chapter 13, verse 14. 
And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, Lift up your eyes now, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. Again, he's going to have to have an heir before he has descendants. And your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And then we go on over, skip on over. You see in chapter 15 that God makes a covenant with Abram. He reiterates the promise. He says, and behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir. Abram was concerned about Eliezer of Damascus, his servant, being his heir. And God appears and said, No, he's not going to be your heir. This one will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So he reiterates the promise. He says, And Eliezer of Damascus will not be your heir. Your heir is coming from your body, that is to say, will be a natural son of yours. And here is the result, the number, the great number of descendants that you'll have. And it says in verse 6, notice this carefully, this is used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That's where Paul, and remember in Romans 4, we won't go over there, but he makes the argument that Abraham is the father not only of the Israelites but of the Gentiles as well because he was declared righteous right here on the basis of faith before he was circumcised. So he's as much the father of the Gentiles as he is the people, any people of faith, whether Jewish, uh, whether Israelites or Gentiles. Says this is a very important text in that regard. So we see that he was justified by faith and God counted his faith as righteousness. Now, with that in mind, let's move on over. We see in, uh, let's skip on over to chapter 18, skip over quite a bit of material here. But here we see that the, a son of promise. First of all, we see the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, not a, you know, it, he learned, Abraham learned that Eliezer of Damascus would not be his heir. So they came up with another plan. Uh, an heir through Hagar, uh, God says no here. <clears throat> God says no in chapter 18. It says, The Lord appeared to him in the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of day. Think about this. Here, here plan one, no, that's not going to take place. It's not Eliezer. Plan two, what about Ishmael from Hagar? Nope, nope, not that. God himself then shows up and he tells both of them, Abraham and Sarah, what is going to, how he's going to do this. Let's skip on down in verse to, to verse 9. It says, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, or as it says in some translations, about this time next year. So remember that, about this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in years, 
in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, I will have pleasure, my Lord being also old. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, that's this time next year, I will return to you according, well, at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So she has not yet conceived, but this same time in the next, the following year, she will. He makes this promise right here. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. So then it goes on to talk about uh, Abraham interceding for Sodom. God tells Abraham what he's going to do. He makes it very clear that Abraham is his friend. That he's going to reveal this thing to him. He's not going to withhold it from him because of his special relationship with God. And it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and then the descendants of Lot. And now then, keeping in mind, keeping in mind that God has made a promise, the two of you shall have a child together. Not going to be Ishmael, not going to be a servant. It's going to be from you too, Abraham and Sarah. And in chapter 21, you read about that, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now, but before, I want you to notice this though. Before then, between the time God made that promise and the time he fulfilled that promise, something else happened. It's in chapter 20. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, said of Abraham, or Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So here we go again. Here we go again. But Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it turned out well. Uh, everything, he, he was not allowed to touch her in an inappropriate way. And uh, then we read, drop on down when all is known here at verse 10. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I, brought, I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. There it is again. He'd received the promise. said, Abraham, your, your wife Sarah is going to bear your son. And she hasn't conceived at this point. Where's all this faith? You see what I'm saying here? He was a man of faith, no question about it. But there's something else going on in his mind. It's not emerging from pure reason. Remember, the part of our minds where our, ration, our rational mind, that's where faith resides. But we have an emotional aspect as well. And sometimes that emotional aspect can override our rational mind. And I think that's what's going on here. But not only that, but from the very outset, Abraham had this concern. Again, showing that something else was going on here. He says in verse 12, But indeed, she is truly my sister. Now, Abimelech said, You are disgusting. <laughs> no. <laughs> she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, 
This is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say to me, we, we go, say to me, he is my brother. So he, had, he told her from the outset that this is what I want you to do. Again, this shows, in my mind, it shows that not only was Abraham a man of faith, but he also had something else going on there. Human beings have emotions, we have, the, we have fear, and sometimes that fear overrides the rational mind where faith resides. And I believe that's what we see going on here. But I want you to notice something else, though. In chapter 22, as time goes on, after Isaac is born, uh, some years later, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your own son, the only you take your, your son, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. And you know the story. He does go, and he is about to go through with it when the angel of the Lord intervenes and stops him. And he says, Now I know. We'll read it in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sands which are on the seashore. So once again, he reiterates the, prob the, uh, the promise. And so we see something different here, don't we? You know that a father typically loves his son better than his own life. You think Abraham was willing to die for Isaac? No doubt. I'm sure he was. Uh, it says very clearly, your son whom you love. He loved him very much, obviously. And yet he was about to do this thing. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's see what the writer of this epistle has to say about this incident. Hebrews 11, and in verse 17 says, By faith... When he was tested, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Now notice this, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This is telling us that Abraham, at this point in his life, understood with his rational mind that the promise was to come about of his descendants through Isaac. That means Isaac had to be alive in order to have descendants through him. If he was the, the second in the line from Abraham informing this multitude of people, the Hebrew peoples. So he knew, he had concluded that Isaac had to be alive. So when he took him, he laid him on the altar, however he did this, with him bound, and took the blade, about to take it to his throat, however he went about doing that, and the angel stopped him. But he was about to do it, nonetheless. You know what I think I see going on here? I think I see growth in faith. I think I see growth in faith. Now the emotion is not overriding the rational mind where faith resides. Now he's showing his willingness and using that rational mind to conclude 
that God will raise him from the dead because God's word is true and God has said that my descendants will come through Isaac. So that means Isaac has to be alive. Too bad that when he was in, before Abimelech or in Egypt, he didn't reason like that. But now that's his reasoning. So again, I think what I see here, I think what we're reading about here is a man after his many experiences, through, through his life's experience of facing one challenge and then another, a man who grew in faith. Well, now let's turn our attention to a New Testament example. While you're turning to Matthew 14, I'll summarize the account to save reading a lot of verses. After Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist, he went by way of boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the multitudes in the nearby cities heard of his whereabouts, they soon started making their way to him. There were more than 5,000 men, women, and children. And you can imagine why they sought him. His fame had spread throughout the whole region. He had healed the sick. He had cast out demons. He had raised the dead. He had calmed the sea. And everyone had heard about these marvels. So they wanted to come out to where he was. So there they were, thousands of them, and Jesus, we're told, was moved with compassion when he saw them. He healed their sick, and when it came time to eat, he fed them. Remember, some 5,000 of them with, two, with five loaves and two fish. Now, that's, that's quite, a, quite an accomplishment there. 5,000 of them with five loaves and two fish. Quite a miracle. As if that were not miraculous enough, there were leftovers about 12 basketfuls, baskets full, in fact. Leftovers. Now, later in the evening, Jesus wanted to be alone, so he told his disciples to get into the boat and go, over, uh, go before him to the other side of the sea, and he sent the multitudes away, and those who had come there with, uh, those who had come there sick went home well, and everybody went home full. Then Jesus went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And this is where I want to take up, uh, well, first of all, I'll tell you, we won't take up the account just yet in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew 14. Uh, but meanwhile, while Jesus was doing this, a storm had blown up and the disciples were in the boat out in the middle of the sea, being tossed about by the waves. Obviously very afraid. Uh, they were... They, but the, the, what they saw next, while being tossed about in the storm out in the middle of the sea, uh, was it really scared the daylights out of them. They looked out and saw right there in the middle of the sea during the storm, someone out there. And he wasn't hanging onto a log, and he wasn't swimming, he wasn't bobbing up and down in the waves, he was walking on the water. And what did they do? Same thing a lot of people today would do if they saw that. It's a ghost! <laughs> That's what they said. They're scared out of their minds. But when they heard that familiar voice, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. It was Jesus, and they recognized that. They recognized that this was the one who had just a few hours earlier fed a multitude of some 5,000 with a few loaves and a couple of fish after healing the sick among them. The same guy that they'd seen raise the dead and heal all kinds of diseases. This was him. And now there, there he was, walking on the sea during a storm. Now, 
the story of Jesus walking on the sea is told in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6, but Luke leaves it out. But of these three, only Matthew tells of what Simon Peter did on this occasion. And this is a very interesting thing. And, it, and once you read, begin to read through the Gospels and become familiar with Simon Peter, you kind of get a, a feel for his personality. Uh, this sounds like him. This sounds like him. In Matthew 14, verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I can imagine him saying that. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Can, can you imagine what that would be like to step out of a boat and actually be held up, supported by the water? You're walking, you start walking. How many of you have ever stepped into a swimming pool and thought about this? Just wondered what it would be like. I've done it. Of course, I, I never walk, but I tried to imagine. I tried to imagine what it's like to step off and walk on it. Now, if it did, if it happened, if I stepped off into a swimming pool and, and it held me up, it was like walking on a solid floor, I'll guarantee you one thing, I would never, ever go off a diving board, not head first especially. I'd be afraid that I'd break bones on the top of the water. <laughs> That's real faith now, isn't it? But here he was, Peter was himself was now walking on the water going toward Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. So there's that old fear arising, isn't it? You see, you need to understand this. Peter was, even at this point, he was a man of faith. Remember, Jesus had sent out his disciples earlier than this, and they went out in his name casting out demons and healing the sick and possibly even raising the dead. And Peter himself had seen Jesus do all these things countless times, and he knew this was the Messiah. In fact, a couple of chapters later when he says, who do, who do you think that I am? It was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. Of course, it wasn't too much longer after that he said, get behind me, Satan, to the same guy. So it's, it tells you, though, that tells you that there's two aspects of human nature here that you're dealing with. One, the rational mind, where faith resides. And Peter, looking at the works of Messiah, knew that this was the Messiah with his rational mind. He was willing to follow him anywhere he went. And anything that would happen to him along the way, he was willing to accept it. But when certain emotions were engaged, he found himself doing something different, something inconsistent with the rational mind where faith resides. And that's what happens here. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So these were people of faith. And even though he says, Oh, you of little faith, he did have still faith. Faith is a grain of mustard seed you move mountains with. But he was a man of faith, no doubt. But here you see his emotion overriding the rational mind where faith resides. 
You see it again in Galatians chapter 2. This is long after the Holy Spirit had come, the ministry had begun, uh, the, the apostolic ministry. Many, many disciples had been made at this point. Galatians 2 verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, he withstood him to his, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, talking about observant Jews, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. There's that old fear arising again, isn't it? And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. This was a very serious matter. On the face of it, you may not think so, but it was very serious. You see, it was none other than Simon Peter himself who was sent to Cornelius. He went into his house, the house of an uncircumcised man, and he said, it's un you know that it is an unlawful thing for me, a Jew, to come in unto you like this. And he said, but God has shown me not to call any man common or unclean. So he obeyed God. He knew that this, this was what God was doing. He witnessed the Holy Spirit's arrival with the miracles that occurred, the speaking in tongues and so on. Real tongues, no doubt. And so he witnessed all of this, and the other Jews that were with them were astonished. They witnessed it too, went back to Jerusalem, and what did they say there? You went into the Gentiles? Of course, that was their tradition. That, that was the way they were brought up. And he said, yes, I did, and this is why. And then when they, he explained the situation and what God was now doing, they rejoiced. So you see what hypocrisy it was now that he would get up and remove himself from Gentile brothers and sisters because of these people with their tradition who had come into the room. You see, this flew in the face of the gospel. It flew in the face of the truth, not only that God had revealed and was, made, was making very well known now through Paul's ministry, but had revealed it personally to Peter. So what a hypocrite he was. So what do we see? Faith, yeah. Faith, he was still a man of faith. But we see fear causing him to behave in a way that is inconsistent with his faith. And you know, that happens to all of us to some degree or another. It happens to all of us. Fear is not the only emotion that can override our reasonable faith. Desire for power can do it. Desire for recognition can do it. All of these are emotions. Desire for money, which is another form of desire for power. Jealousy, lust, greed, anger, all of these are emotions. You know, even lethargy is an emotion. It's a feeling. And that can override the rational mind and hence faith if we're not careful. So the struggle is not merely external. External forces create conditions that rouse the internal forces, that is, your emotions. And that's what we have to deal with, our emotions. You know, when it comes down to it, that's what it is. It's the internal struggle that's the, it's where the real struggle is. People have faced persecution of all sorts. People have died for Christ's namesake. And pe some people facing the same situation because of emotions, because of fear, because of whatever the emotion was. In some cases, it, could, it may not be persecution. 
As I said, lethargy is a very real force to be dealt with. In some cases, it's harder than persecution, the, the, the feelings that arise from persecution. Lethargy. It is an emotion to be dealt with. But you know, the lesson is very simple in all of this. I'm not telling you today anything that you don't already know. Maybe putting in a little bit different format, but I'm telling you the same thing you've known all along. And that is to grow in faith. This is, this is the key. Not a secret, something you know. But to grow in faith, be faithful. Oh, you're going to run into obstacles, internal things, emotions to struggle with. But do you want to grow in faith? You know, you don't... You don't Strain real hard and try to work up more. How can I get more faith? No, you, you have faith. You already, that's not the issue. You are a people of faith. You're a person of faith. That's not a problem. The issue is what do you do with those internal forces that would override that faith? That's what we're talking about here. And so the key is just be faithful. Be aware of it. Just being aware of it is helpful. Being aware of what the real issue is, what the real battle is about. And you don't need, you don't need to go out and set up an obstacle course to test your faith. You don't need that. In fact, I wouldn't recommend it. Don't do it. Say, well, I'm going to step off this building today. I believe God will deliver me. Don't do that because he probably won't. That's not faith. That's foolishness. You don't need to set up an obstacle course to, to test your faith because it's already been set up for you. That's what life is. You're going from day to day, from week to week, throughout each year, you're going to run into situations involving other people, involving uh, circumstances that will give rise to emotions that you're going to have to deal with. What do you do? You remember where you take your marching orders from. You remember his law, his commandments, his instructions. Always. And you simply, even in the face of these obstacles, in the face of these feelings that rise, or, or because of the, in, in, in opposition to the feelings, you simply do what you know to do, and that is be faithful. You want to grow your faith? Be faithful.